of churches. You can turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 9. We're going to read Jeremiah 9, 11 to 26. The focus this morning, though, will be verses 23 and 24. So this is Jeremiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 11. This is the word of the triune God. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a den of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. Who is the wise man who may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare it? Why does the land perish and burn up like a wilderness so that no one can pass through? And the Lord said, because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them and have not obeyed my voice nor walked according to it. But they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts and after the bales, which their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood and give them water of gall to drink. I will scatter them also among the Gentiles whom neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send a sword after them until I have consumed them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider and call for the mourning women, that they may come, and send for skillful wailing women, that they may come. Let them make haste and take up a wailing for us, that our eyes may run with tears, and our eyelids gush with water. For a voice of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are plundered, we are greatly ashamed, because we have forsaken the land, because we have been cast out of our dwellings. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O women, and let, uh, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing, and everyone her neighbor a lamentation. For death has come through our windows and entered our palaces, to kill off the children no longer to be outside, and the young men no longer on the streets. Speak, thus says the Lord, even the carcasses of men shall fall as refuse on the open field, like cuttings after the harvester, and no one shall gather them. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. Amen. Well, let's go to our God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time in worship, the preaching of your word. We pray that you would bless us in this time. Uh, be with preacher, be with hearer. Help us, Lord God, by your spirit uh, to rejoice in your word, to sing the praises of our Christ, uh, to learn of our God that we might leave this place singing your praises. Uh, do be with us. And Lord God, once again, as we often pray, we pray that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be exalted upon the praises of this gathered assembly this morning. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Well, Jeremiah, as many of you may know, is preaching and prophesying about 600 years prior 
to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So 600 BC, a little bit before 600 BC and then into the, uh, into the early 500s. Um, and he's preaching after Assyria had over a hundred years previously come in judgment against the northern tribes. And he's preaching specifically and prophesying specifically to the southern tribes um, that they are the recipients inevitably of divine justice and that they are to flee to the Lord and truly to flee to Christ, looking forward to him in faith and new covenant promises. They are not, as we'll see in our passage, to look to themselves, to their own riches, to their own wisdom and to their own strength, glorying in those things, but much rather they are to look to and to glory in the Lord. A little bit of context here, the uh, just three things by way of introduction as we build up to the exposition of the passage. Uh, First off, there is the inevitability of coming judgment. Um, Hopefully you saw that in the passage, not only at the beginning, but at the very end of the portion that we read. But notice, uh, notice at the beginning of the passage, as we started reading in verse 11, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a den of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. So judgment is coming. Judgment cannot be averted. This is not a warning to return back to the old paths so that they might avert judgment, so that they might avert calamity in the whirlwind of divine justice, but much rather the whirlwind of divine justice is coming by God's tool Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian cronies. And so the call is for them to understand and know God and to glory in him alone. So the inevitability of coming judgment is throughout this particular book, and Israel is called to faithfulness to their God. Secondly, there is a covenantal background. In fact, Pastor Mike, as he was reading in Joshua, uh, in uh, Joshua, there is a call by Joshua for the gathered assembly there to look back to the law of Moses and to be faithful to their God, to not uh, to not go after other paths, but rather to remain faithful to the covenant that God had impressed upon them. That is also throughout the book of Jeremiah. Here, there is a covenantal background. You'll remember that in uh, both in the first and in the second generations after redemption out of Egypt, there are certain, uh, certain blessings given for covenantal obedience, and there are also cursings promised if they are disobedient, if Israel is disobedient uh, to the covenant. And so in the context here, Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, they have been disobedient to the covenant that God had made with them. And so as God promises, he is about to deliver judgment. And this is something that ought to, even though the inevitability of coming judgment doesn't necessarily immediately warm our hearts, but what's in the background should, and that is that God is sure to his promises. As the people of God, we should rejoice in the fact that God is sure to his promises. Whether it's the deliverance of blessings for obedience in the context, or whether it's for the promise fulfilled in the whirlwind of divine justice for disobedience rendered. For Israel, for Judah, for Jerusalem, going a whoring after other gods and not being faithful to the Lord, to Yahweh, the God of the armies of Israel. 
And so the covenantal background is clear. They will be incurring the curses for covenantal disobedience. And then thirdly, just by way of introduction, the reason for the judgment. We saw a little bit of, uh, a little bit of it in Jeremiah 9 there. But if you can, turn in your Bibles with me to Jeremiah 2. Because we can see a, a buildup of prophesying where Jeremiah is giving them the reason for this inevitable coming calamity or judgment. Notice in Jeremiah 2 at verse 12. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water." Verse 17, have you not brought this on yourself in that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And notice verse 19 as well in the middle. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God and the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds. And you said, I will not transgress. When on every high hill and under every green tree, you lay down playing the harlot. Yet I had not planted a noble, the, excuse me, yet I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? So you see then, moving back to our passage, Jeremiah speaks the same words in Jeremiah 9, 13. And the Lord said, because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them and have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it. But they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts and after the bales. So you see the transgression here. This nation, this nation which was supposed to be the nation of the Lord, has gone away from the Lord and has forsaken him. So that's the reason for this coming inevitable judgment in the context of our passage, which again is verse 23 and 24. And it breaks down this way, and this is the way that we'll follow it in three particular ways. First off, there is a, prohib uh, a prohibitive warning issued. There is a warning what not to do. Secondly, there is prescriptive counsel given what they are to do. And then thirdly, there are some attendant truths expressed, uh, things that they are to think about, contemplate in doing right before the Lord. So we're going to look at these three things under three headings. First off, the vainglorious quest. Secondly, the virtuous path. And thirdly, the voracious contemplation. And we'll explain those things as we, uh, as we move along. But three V's there for you to, to try and track as we move through the passage. First off, then, the vainglorious quest. And what does vainglorious mean? Well, it carries the two meanings of those two words. Vanity is uh, something that's empty or hollow. And glorying is, is uh, in the human nature context, an excessive pride or arrogance or overconfidence in something. And so what does vainglorious mean then? It means excessive confidence in hollow or empty things. And so we see that in verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. So these things, these gloryings 
our vainglorious quests. These are, or they are, the Lord God says, not to glory in these three things. It is a vainglorious quest. It is excessive pride in empty or hollow things. The, uh, the proverbialist or the Solomon would say, do not set your heart on these things in giving wisdom to his sons. So first off, we want to make a qualification. The warning is not against thankfulness for legitimate things. You know, this isn't a warning. Uh, this isn't a warning against the legitimacy of having a proper wisdom. This isn't a warning against the legitimacy of having a proper strength, nor is it a warning against having riches. These things aren't in and of themselves wicked, of course. No, the warning is against glorying and empty boasting and excessive pride in these things, and perhaps most notably to the exclusion of God in our thoughts and in our actions. And so that's why the Lord God comes and he delivers this prohibitive warning. So again, it's not a warning against thankfulness for legitimate things. We ought to thank the Lord for wisdom. We ought to thank the Lord that the, the, the scriptures, the word of the Lord makes wise the simple. We ought to thank the Lord for physical strength. Isn't it a blessing to, we, we heard prayers, uh, prayer requests this morning and we prayed for people that, uh, for families of people who have died. Uh, we prayed for people who have cancer and, and who have, you know, all manner of illnesses. It is, it is a blessing to reflect on the fact that right now we, we, we draw breath in our lungs. We have the function of our arms and, and our legs. Uh, we can get up and we can walk, perhaps some of us more feebly than others, but we have a physical strength, don't we? And we often can neglect that, or we, we can often take that for granted. Uh, riches as well. It's not sinful, of course, to have riches. We ought to thank the Lord that we have money to, to buy rice and red meat, that we have uh, money to, you know, give our kids cereal, that we have money to, to put fuel in a car, and, and we have a, head, a, a house, a roof over our heads, and these sorts of things. So again, we ought to glory in God, who is the giver of these things, but we are not to have vain glory in these things to the exclusion of God from our thoughts and our actions. First, uh, for, or not first, but secondly, the general folly of boasting in wisdom, might, and riches. So we're moving from the general to the specific as we find it in this context, but there is a general folly of boasting in wisdom, might, and riches. And ultimately, why? Because it is God who gives us these things, and we are to glory in him. You can turn with me to, the, to Psalm 68. To Psalm 68, as we recognize and as we want to identify the fact that there is a general folly in boasting in wisdom, might, and riches. Notice in Psalm 68 at verse 32. Psalm 68, verse 32. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. O sing praises to the Lord. Selah. To him who rides on the heaven of heavens, which were of old. Indeed, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice. Ascribe strength to God. His excellence is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds. O God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. You see, you see here how God calls or the psalmist is calling the people of God to recognize that we are not to glory in ourselves. We are not to glory 
in what we have, though we are to be thankful, but much rather we are to glory in God. Why? Because it is he who gives strength and power to his people. To his people. We are to ascribe strength to him because his excellence is over Israel. We, we live in it, not that it has been absent from every generation before our own, but we're a generation of people who like to, to glory in our own excellencies. Um, you know, I, I mentioned to the, the congregation in Chilliwack last Lord's Day that I think we could, with Jeremiah 9 in view, rename social media Wisdom, Might, and Riches. It's a, it's a my wisdom, my might, and my riches world where, you know, we need to publicly declare how, excellently we, how excellent we are on social media. I recognize there's a legitimate use to social media, sharing beautiful photos of your grandchildren and your children and your garden and your food and that sort of thing. But our generation seems to be one who exalts its excellencies to the exclusion of the, the God who gave them good things. And we think ourselves the, the masters of our own destiny and the masters of our own wisdom, the masters of our own strength, and the masters of our own riches. And in fact, for a case study in this, you can turn with me to the book of Daniel. As we turn to the book of Daniel, some of you might know where we're going. And in fact, there's a connection to our passage here because Daniel 4, uh, the passage we're going to read is about Nebuchadnezzar and the prophecy of inevitable coming, coming judgment given by Jeremiah to Jerusalem and Judah concerns this very Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, who with his cronies as divine tools are coming to mete out covenant justice uh, by the hand of God. But notice as a case study in glorying in wisdom, might, and riches to the exclusion of the thoughts of the giver of those things. Notice Nebuchadnezzar in uh, verse 28 of chapter 4. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? You see this you see this glorying here and you see the connection to our passage that Jer Jerusalem and Judah were not to be like King Nebuchadnezzar who did not realize that he was actually a tool of divine justice. He was being used of God to mete out the covenant curses and he thinks as he says here is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. You see, we are not to glory or the wise man is not to glory in his wisdom, nor the mighty man in his might, nor the rich man in his riches, but he is to glory in the Lord. Notice, notice that after the time of judgment that God puts Nebuchadnezzar through, after he's uh, eating grass like beasts and growing nails like birds' claws. Notice in verse 34, after that time of judgment that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar for his vainglorious boasting, verse 34, and at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. That's a key point as we get to verse 24 of Jeremiah 9. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And notice this blessed confession by Nebuchadnezzar. 
For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? It's a blessed confession by Nebuchadnezzar of the sovereignty of God, of the unmitigated mastery of God over the universe of his creation and providence. And notice the shift in language by Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar was boasting in vain glory, he said, I and my and my. And now as we come to the To uh, verse 34, he says to God, or with respect to God, his dominion, his kingdom, he does according to his will. And this is, going back to Jeremiah 9, what God wants Jerusalem, what God wants Judah to imbibe in the inevitable coming judgment, is that posture of the very one who is used as a tool to judge them according to covenantal disobedience and the curses that follow. There is a general folly of boasting in wisdom and might and riches. And it is, again, because God is the giver of all of these things. Remember that, remember that scene in, in Acts 17 where the Apostle Paul is preaching uh, to, an audience of, uh, to an audience of Greeks? Uh, he's preaching there at the Areopagus, and he calls the people there to reflect upon the fact that they have life and breath and all things by virtue of God. That it is God who puts people in their respective places and providentially blesses them. And so what a... What a colossal folly it is for men and women and boys and girls to boast in themselves, to boast in what they have, and to the exclusion of boasting in the Lord God who gave them these things. This is why as we raise our heads in the morning and as we rest them at night, we ought to open the day and close the day by reflecting upon the God who gives us so many blessings. And who above all has given us salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, our redeeming King. So we do not boast. There is a general folly in boasting in these things. But as well, there is, with respect to the context, a specific error in boasting in wisdom, might, and in riches. And Henry sums it up as in saying that these things are what we may not depend upon in a day of distress. You see, judgment is coming. It is inevitable. They had broken God's covenant, and so the whirlwind of divine justice is coming. And so what is wisdom going to do? Or we would say wisdom so-called. What is might going to do, and what are riches going to do in the face of inevitable judgment? Notice that these things will not help them in the face of irreversible calamity. The rich cannot buy themselves out of the coming day of trouble. In our passage, we have something of this. Notice verse, uh, verse 21 of chapter 9. Again, the rich cannot buy themselves out of the day of trouble, for death has come through our windows, has entered our palaces. Matthew Henry on this says, Death shall ride in triumph, and there shall, be, there shall be no escaping his arrests when he comes with commission, neither within doors nor without. Not within doors, nor let the doors be shut ever so fast. Excuse me. For let the doors be shut ever so fast. Let them be ever so firmly locked and bolted. Death comes up into our windows like a thief in the night. It steals upon us ere we are aware. 
Nor does it thus boldly attack the cottages only, but it has entered into our palaces, the palaces of our princes and great men, though ever so stately, ever so strongly built and guarded. No palaces can keep out death. And so this warning, specifically in our context here, let not the rich man glory in his riches, this warning is given because the rich cannot buy themselves out of the day of coming trouble. You know, it was common in this time for, uh, for nations that may be overcome by a stronger nation, whether Assyria or Babylon or Lado, the, the Medo-Persian Empire, and later the Roman Empire or the Greeks and then the Romans, that sort of a thing. Smaller nations perhaps to pay tribute of riches, to avert judgment. Uh, you know, the provision that the kings, the rulers, the heads of the tribes maybe gather together uh, some riches, go to the, uh, the ambassadors or the king himself and say, here, uh, here is a provision, a tribute. Um, please, you know, stay away from us. But the judgment is inevitable. They had broken the covenant. They cannot avert this coming justice. So rich men don't glory in your riches because you cannot buy your way out of the coming curses of the covenant. As well, the wise cannot by political movements maneuver Israel out of harm's way. That's why we have this warning, not the only reason, but a heavy reason. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. You wise men will not be able to politically maneuver your way out of Babylon's incursion, attack, and destruction. And so the warning is given, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. In fact, look at chapter 8, just one chapter before here at verse 9, specifically on this point. The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to those who will inherit them. Because from the least, even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. From the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So this warning against the wise comes because the wise really aren't wise, and there is no way that they're going to be able to avert that coming judgment. And also in Jeremiah 18, uh, Jeremiah 18, notice at verse 18, with respect to the wise men. Then they said, come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come and let us attack him with the tongue, and let us not give heed to any of his words. If you've ever read Jeremiah, and maybe even just as you're contemplating Jeremiah now as we read, he's very much a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is something of a prophetical forerunner to Jesus Christ. Jeremiah comes and he brings the wisdom of the Lord. He's serving as a prophet, bringing the wisdom of God to a people who have gone astray and they seek to kill him. They seek to reject his word as they have rejected the word of God, which is the same. And so they seek to kill him. He's very much like 
uh, like the Lord Jesus Christ in that way. Gill speaks with regards to these wise rulers and the warning against them. We have wise rulers and governors, counselors of state and members of the Sanhedrin, speaking like Jeremiah here, and judges of all controversies and who are capable of giving advice upon any occasion, nor shall we ever want such to whose prudent counsel we do well to attend and not to what this babbling man says, does he think to know better than our statesmen and sages, our counselors in church and state? So John Gill is speaking as Jeremiah, speaking as the people who are against Jeremiah. All of that to say, these so-called wise men do not have true wisdom. So not only would they, should they not glory in wisdom truly so-called, but they should not glory in this false wisdom that they have because they will not be able to avert the coming whirlwind. And the strong as well cannot stand against that set in motion whirlwind of divine justice, nor let the mighty man glory in his might. There, there were many mighty and valiant men amongst the, 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 the armies of Israel. And yet for all their might, for all their strength, for all their military prowess, they will not be able to avoid Nebuchadnezzar and the coming Babylonian judgment. They will not ultimately be able to strength and might their way out of divine justice. And so what then is the proper path? What then is the proper way? What then is the proper quest? It does come with verse 24. But just before we get there, the specific error of boasting in wisdom, might, and riches is not only because these things will not help them in the face of inevitable calamity, but also because these things will all be taken away. So why glory? Why put your trust in wisdom, might, and riches when all of these things are going to be taken away in that inevitable calamity and judgment. You can turn with me. If you can't, you can just listen as I read. But in 2 Kings, we have a parallel account of what's going on here. We have the historical narrative, if you will, of the judgment by Babylon against Judah. So in 2 Kings 24, we can see that wisdom, might, and riches, these things are not going to help them in the day of judgment. Second uh, Kings 24, beginning at verse 13. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house. This is Nebuchadnezzar and, and uh, the Babylonians. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he cut in pieces all the articles of gold, which Solomon king of Israel had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. Also, he carried into captivity all Jerusalem, all the captains and all note, the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and smiths, etc. So these things should not be gloried in, or there is specific error in boasting in these things because they will all be taken away. And also because they are set against the knowledge of God and heeding his word. Empty boasting, excessive pride and confidence in wisdom, might, and riches is set against the knowledge of God and the heeding of his word, which we now turn to. So there is a vainglorious quest, and that is to set your trust upon, to rest upon, to boast in wisdom, might, and riches to the exclusion of God. So what is then, secondly, the virtuous path? 
Well, we have it here in the language, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. So wise men, mighty men, rich men, truly all men, women, boys and girls, do not boast in those empty things, but put your boast in me. Glory in the Lord God Almighty. And if you're here this morning and you, you get nothing else that I, that I say, get this. We are to glory in the triune God of heaven and earth, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, there's a New Testament equivalent similar to this, and that is, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are things that we are to glory in, and those things exclusively belong to the Lord God Almighty. The, the Psalms are replete with that call. The Psalms are replete with, uh, uh, with even mockery against pagan gods, saying, let the pagan gods glory in the Lord God Almighty, who of course are no gods at all. The call upon all creation to glory in the Lord God who made us, the Lord God who sustains us, and the Lord God who redeems us by the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would we put, why would we put excessive pride or have excessive pride, arrogance, or confidence in anything? It, it, it kills a proper pride, a proper confidence, and a proper glorying in the one who gives us breath, in the one who gives us goodness, in the one who sustains us, and in the one who saves us. So there is a virtuous path, and it has to do with the knowledge and the understanding of God. Calvin says, to know God is the chief part of perfect wisdom. So the wise men who have wisdom, but wisdom so-called, it's actually folly. What should they do? Not glory in their own wisdom, but know that to know God is the chief part of perfect wisdom. Henry says, those that know God, speaking of those who are uh, or would be identified by virtue of this call in verse 24, he says, <clears throat> excuse me, those that know God intelligently, that understand aright that he is Lord, that have not only right apprehensions concerning his nature and attributes and relations to man, but receive and retain the impressions of them. Isn't that who we want to be? That we know our God, that we understand him? You think we could think about this in the marriage. Imagine just saying, you know what? I've been saved, I, you know, I'm maybe a new Christian. And, you know, I, I'm good. I, I've been saved. I don't, I don't need to know God. Let me just, you know, bask in emotion and experience and not engage my mind in the knowledge of God. You know, think about that in the context of marriage as an analogy. Husbands, you, you, marry, you marry your wife. Wives, you, you marry your, your husband. Well, you don't marry your wife. You marry your engaged love, and she becomes your wife. But you, you, you get married, and then you just say, you know what? I don't really want to go on this path of learning and knowing you more as we move along our relationship. Let's just you know, forget about that and just you know, sort of bask in the, in, in the petals of, uh, of an emotional love. No, you want to know your wife. You want to know your husband. You want to grow in the knowledge of the one you love. So as Christians, moving from the analogy to the higher spiritual thing, should we not learn and know about our God? Should we not understand and know him? We are, as Christians, ever and always the students of the Most High God, and we ought to glory in that. 
That's why Henry says here, not only do we have right apprehensions that simply right knowledge, the gaining of knowledge, learning about God concerning his nature and his attributes and his relations to man, but also receive and retain those impressions. We want to, with joy, receive the knowledge of God and glory in him. It's not a, it's not a bare, cold speculation, our engagement in learning about God, but it's a joy-filled, warm, Christian heart reception of the knowledge of our great God. Shouldn't we know the one who created us? Shouldn't we want to know the one who created us, the one who providentially sustains us, and again, the one who by his grace and for his glory called us forth from darkness to light to know the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? There is no study greater than the study of the triune God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Spurgeon says this, Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man, as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And whilst humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. Hopefully that that hits each and every one of us and warms us and stirs us up and rouses us to this call that him who glories is to glory in this, that he understands and knows God. There is a true and proper glorying, and it is exclusively God's due. That's what we find in the scriptures. We, we don't really have the time, but in 1 Chronicles 29, 10 to 13, a parallel passage for anyone who takes notes, you can read about that with respect to the context of covenantal blessings and disobedience. We are to give true and proper glorying to one only, and that is to God. I want you to turn, though, with me to Revelation 4. On this, that true and proper glorying is exclusively God's due. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, nor the strong in his strength, nor the rich in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows God. Notice in Revelation 4 at verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created." You see, that speaks to the exclusive nature of glorying being God's only. And it also speaks to the reason why glorying is to be given to God only. He is worthy 
to receive honor, glory, and power for that because that reason word for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Now notice in Revelation 5 at verse 11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice. Now notice this language connected to our passage. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. You see, when Jeremiah is prophesying there in Jeremiah chapter 9, giving that prohibitive warning, giving now this prescriptive counsel, and later on giving some attendant truths that are expressed, he's doing so not devoid of Christ, not devoid of the knowledge of Christ. That prophecy is not Christless. Jeremiah speaks concerning the coming Christ in a number of places. One place he says there is one coming, the Lord our righteousness, who of course is that coming Christ, who in 600 years would come, taking on man's nature, uh, appearing, uh, appearing as a man, coming in humanity without sin to redeem his elect. And so Jeremiah, in giving this prophecy, is not preaching and prophesying Christless, but with the knowledge of that hero born of woman who would crush the serpent with his heel, with that knowledge of a coming one who would redeem Israel, he speaks and he prophesies regarding the understanding and the knowledge of God. And we have this consummative completion announced and proclaimed and praised in in revelation worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power let not the mighty man glory in his might to receive riches let not the rich man glory in his in his riches and wisdom let not the wise man glory in his wisdom but rather glory in the lamb who was slain who is given strength and honor and glory and blessing That is the movement of revelation towards this coming one who would give his life for his people. And so true and proper glorying is exclusively God's due. And there is a general necessity of the knowledge of God. We are as Christians to know God. That is a commandment and it doesn't come as a commandment that's so burdensome. Oh, you know, I need to know the God who created all things and upholds all things and has redeemed me by the precious blood of Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness. It should be our joy and our privilege to be able to know our God, to open up our Bibles and study the one who gave us this word that we might know him. It's the giving of revelation. God has revealed himself to the sons of men that we might know him through his son, Jesus Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the general necessity of the knowledge of God, we are to know him. In fact, Jeremiah speaks concerning that in Jeremiah 2 at verse 8. If you find your way back to the book of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 2 and verse 8, we read the following, The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. We are to know the Lord God Almighty. If we had read or started earlier in Jeremiah chapter 9, we would have read in Jeremiah 9, 
at verse 3, and, they, and like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. They are not valiant for the truth on earth, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, says the Lord. There is a general necessity to know the Lord. We are, as Hosea uh, says in Hosea 4.1, you need not turn there to hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is not truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. As we, as we scan our present landscape in our own nation, in the United States and around the world, isn't that something that we see? There is not truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. Not only ought we to pray for ourselves that we might understand and know God more, but we ought to pray that God would by the, the, the powerful motions of spirit and the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, make it such that there is truth, there is mercy, and there is knowledge of God in the land. Isn't it our prayer? I mean, oftentimes we want to pray, pray with imprecation, and there are times where it is very legitimate to pray imprecatorily. I don't know if that's a word, but to, to pray with imprecation, to call down the wrath of God upon those who disobey, to call down the wrath of God upon those who are wicked and evil and perpetrating evil in the land. We ought to enjoy, or we ought to, to join those prayers with prayers for the proclamation of the word of God, that those who are currently enemies of God would be made friends by amazing and victorious grace, that they would believe on the redeeming King of kings and Lord of lords, and that they would understand and know God. Not only is there a general necessity for the knowledge of God, but there is a specific necessity of the knowledge of God in the face of inevitable calamity. You see, remember that there is judgment coming and it will not be averted. And so there is the knowledge of God that is specifically necessary because this judgment is coming. They were to understand that the only wisdom that avails is that which has God as the ground and content. You see, the wise men glorying in their wisdom were not glorying in the fact that they knew God and they, they glorying in his attributes, his nature, and his works, but they were glorying in their own wisdom so-called as if they could, by political machinations, avoid coming judgment. They were to understand that only true wisdom is that which avails having God as the ground and content. They were to understand that the only abiding strength comes from God who is to be understood and known. If anyone is to be thankful in strength, again, not boastful and not vainglorious in it, but thankful in strength, they thank the Lord God for the giving of it. And you know what, brethren? They thank the Lord God for the taking away of it as well. Remember that God is the one, our Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the one who giveth and who taketh away. Whether he provides us strength or riches or whether he takes those things away, we are to glory in him because he is the Lord, the giver and the taker. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. They were to understand, again, that the only biting strength comes from the God who is to be understood and known, and the only eternal riches are found in the knowledge of God and of his Christ. The language of riches is used concerning the Lord Jesus Christ in many places. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Ephesians 1, 7, 1 Peter 1, 17 to 19. 
Riches are in Christ. Eternal riches come from God, and they are seen in the perfection of Christ and his blessed work. Why would we want any other riches? You know, it was a common, uh, it was a common practice in the Greco-Roman world and perhaps in, um, I, uh, in other empires and in other places as well to, uh, you know, to put coins on the eyes of the, the dead and bury them um, in order either A, for them to have riches in the afterlife. Sometimes uh, people were buried with riches in order to, to have them in the afterlife or to pay the ferryman, uh, ferryman to, to get a, across the river sticks and in, uh, in Greco-Roman mythology. You know, we don't take our riches with us. The riches that we have are those eternally, and they are in the Lord Jesus Christ, and only they are of eternal merit and value. And so why would we have vainglorious boasting in anything, save for the riches that are in Jesus Christ, our redeeming King? And so we close then with a note of this voracious contemplation. We are to know God. We are to understand and know him. And then notice the the voracious contemplation. That simply means something rich with truth. So we are to contemplate on, we are to think concerning God, his nature, his attributes, his perfections, his glory. And we are also to contemplate upon the works of the Lord, what he does. Notice, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Those are blessed certain truths of a voracious quality that we are to contemplate on. That, that wonderful word, that, is very often used in Scripture to, to qualify and expand upon something that's already been stated or to, to blessedly supplement something that has been stated. Understand and know me, and then know me more in this way, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, righteousness in the earth. We are to contemplate on these things, an understanding and in understanding and knowing God, what are the specific contemplations to fill our minds with? Well, we see here, first off, the identification of the only true God. We, sh- we ought not to skip past this statement that I am the Lord. Because it is rich with meaning. First and foremost, well, not foremost, but first, we would want to identify that there is one only, the living and true God. There are no other gods save for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that God is just that God. Not only is he one in such a way that there could be no other, but he is one who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in knowing our God, we know that he is one according to essence. We know that he is three according to subsistences. And we know that he is the only Lord God Almighty. Also connected to this is the fact that he is calling upon Judah... He is calling upon Israel here to reflect upon the fact that he is the Lord who called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. He is the one who gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob those, uh, those patriarchal promises that there would be a seed coming who would bless the nations. And from Abraham's loins, there would be that one who would come who would bless the nations, who would ultimately save his people from their sins. He is that Lord of the burning bush. He is that Lord of Sinai. He is the Lord who gave the covenant that they broke. And even though they broke it, he says 
He is exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. Again, don't seek after glorying in those things, but glory in me, even though judgment is coming, even though this calamity is inevitable, in me there is hope, there is safe refuge. I am that tower of strength. I am your wisdom. I am your might. I am your riches. That's what the Lord is saying here. He is the Lord. He is the only true God. And he is the God of the history of Israel who has many times redeemed them, blessed them, called them to repentance, had a long suffering connected to this loving kindness, no doubt is a long suffering. He has called his people to follow after those old paths, the blessed paths of faith in the only living and true God. There is this blessed recognition of mercy or loving kindness. Isn't it, isn't it amazing if you see the contrast here? And it's not different gods and it's not a schizophrenic God that we have because we have in verse 11, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a den of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. And then we have understand and know this, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness. These things are consistent because God, sure to his promise, is meeting out justice by way of Babylon upon these covenantally disobedient people. But also, according to his promise, he will bless those who understand and know him who rest their faith upon him, who do not trust and glory in wisdom, strength, and riches of the world, but glory in those riches, strengths, and wisdom that the Lord God Almighty supplies and gives and that he alone has to dispense. He is the one who, is an exer- who has loving kindness and who exercises mercy. Isn't this a blessed thing as we reflect upon our own sins? You know, it's okay sometimes, not to, uh, not to in, a, in, a, in an undue and an overbearing and in a weird way, just reflect and wallow in your own sins. But it's a good thing to reflect upon that not only have we sinned, but as redeemed Christians with remaining corruption, we'll continue to sin. We'll continue to break the law of God. And yet we have the sure promise by virtue of the perfection of the work of Jesus Christ that God to us exercises loving kindness. When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, the the wrath-bearing curse for our sins. He took our sins upon him on that tree. Isn't that a blessed thing? As we can consider the righteous justice of God, we righteously or we deserved according to his holiness and his justice, death and and curse, not only in this life, but also in the life which is to come. And yet he, by amazing and victorious grace, has called us out from darkness. He will be our refuge, our hope, and our tower of strength because divine justice has been averted or it has been born by the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, our blessed substitute. The loving kindness of God is immense. It is eternal. And to reflect upon such mercy and the height of such love is a blessed thing. And notice, of course, the acknowledgement of his perfect government. 
that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. Calvin, speaking with regards to these two words, says when these two words are joined together, they denote perfect government. That is, that God defends his faithful people, aids the miserable, and delivers them when justly oppressed, and also that he restrains the wicked and suffers them not to endure the innocent at their pleasure. That is, excuse me, I think I said endure to not injure the innocent at their pleasure. These then are the things which the scripture everywhere means by the two words, judgment and justice or righteousness. The justice of God is not to be taken according to what is commonly understood by it. And they speak incorrectly who represent God's justice as in opposition to his mercy. Hence the common proverb, I appeal from justice to mercy. The scripture speaks otherwise for justice is to be taken for that faithful protection of God by which he defends and preserves his own people and judgment for the rigor which he exercises against the transgressors of his law. We should rest in the blessedness of those two words because we, falling under the first, he defends and preserves his own people. Isn't that a blessed thing that God preserves us? God defends us? It should, be a, it should be a blessing that we behold as we understand and know God, a reflection upon his defense and his preservation. He does uphold us. In times of trial, he upholds us. In times of affliction, in times of sickness, in times of great trouble, the Lord God upholds us. Whenever we're going through a season, whenever we're going through a time of such things, we can very often try to rely and rest upon our own strength and our own resources. God is very often not the first place that we go when we endure trouble and affliction and trial. And why is that? We often try to try to just, you know, do it on our own to pull up our pull up our socks and and try to engage and to bear the face of this trouble all on our own. The first destination should be the God of heaven and earth who defends and preserves. And we ought to have confidence, blessed confidence in the face of so many evils in this day that God does with the rigor of righteousness or justice exercise that against the transgressors of his law. As we look upon the land where there's so much evil, where there's so much corruption, where, where vice is called virtue and virtue is called vice, we can be sure that God will deliver justice upon those who oppose him. And that's a blessed resting place as we look upon the landscape today. So, brethren, in, in a minute and 37 seconds, we are to understand and know God as we close here this morning. Do you have that Christian drive and rousal to open up your Bibles, to open up books and learn about our God? Because it's the greatest subject in heaven and on earth to know God, to know the one who has created all things by the word of his power, to know the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, to know the one who has redeemed us through the perfect work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a blessed subject, what a blessed science, what a blessed school, the school of the triune God. If you're here this morning and you don't know this God, if you perhaps, well, you do fall within that class and classification of people who will inevitably receive calamity and judgment by the righteous and holy hand of God, if you do not believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Know that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. Know that he bore the sins of many, that he might bring a multitude of praise-filled tongues to, to heaven. From every tribe and tongue and people and nation, what a blessed truth that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. Believe on him and leave with, uh, with those uh, gathering of saints here. Leave this door in the back, singing the praises of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and singing the praises of so great a gospel. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your time in the word. We rejoice in your goodness to us. We thank you for your precious word that discloses a God that we can know. Uh, we pray that you would stir our hearts unto a knowledge of our blessed God. Help us, God, to know you. Help us to understand you. Help us to rejoice in your loving kindness. Help us to rejoice in your mercy, your justice, your righteous government, your righteousness. Help us, Lord God, to, be, uh, to have our noses in your word, that we might rejoice in your revelation to the sons of men, and that we might know and glory in the fact that page after page, chapter after chapter, your word points to Christ upon the cross, working out the salvation of sinners. And it's in his name that we do pray.